When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, this is um, a podcast about scale. It's for the Wealth Ability Show, and uh, the guest is John List. Um, we ought, we should be have good uh, video as well as good audio. So hopefully that is all good. Let me just double check my audio here. Excuse me. All right. Uh, Mike should be good. Mike's good there. Um, Okay. Mike, Mike, Mike. Okay. Hello, hello, hello. All right. So we should be good there. And we are recording. Video looks good. Okay. Should be good to go. HD. Output level should be good. Okay. All right.
Yes. Hey, Tom, how you doing? John, how are you? Oops, I can't hear you. Can, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yes. Hmm. So it's my, probably your. Tom, can you hear me now? Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. There, there we go. All right. There we go. There we go. We, is, we, this, we, is this video going to play or is it yes. just going to be our voices? Yep. We, we, put, we, we, we put the video out on YouTube and put the audio on podcast. Then I'm going to choose a better background to advertise the book. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I like it. That's awesome. No, that, that's great. Thanks so much for doing this, John. Really appreciate it. I, um, I, I, I love the topic. Big fan. Um, Thanks. Uh, big fan of what Walmart has done over the years as to from a purely business and scale standpoint. So really um, love that you've written this book and love that uh, we're, we're getting this out there. So really appreciate Great. it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate your kind words, Tom. No, of course. And, and just so you know, I'm the, I'm a student. So I'm just going to be asking questions like a student. I am learning this sure. stuff. And so I'm going to ask you as you're the teacher, I'm the student. Okay. So sure, sure. Absolutely. We'll do that. I'll start off. I know you've got a hard uh, stop at the bottom of the hour. So yeah. um, we'll go 20 to 25 minutes. Um, this is meant to be kind of a commute show anyway. So that timing works perfect. And then um, I'll, I'll do my introduction. I'll introduce, introduce the topic and then I'll um, introduce you, but then I'll let you you know, give a little bit of your background and then we'll just have a conversation. Is that okay? That sounds great. That sounds great. All right. Perfect. So we are recording. So here we go. Welcome to the Wealth Ability Show, where we're always discovering how to make way more money and pay way less taxes. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of Wealth Ability. So there are a lot of good ideas out there, but why is it that some ideas go big and some ideas just linger. And it's probably not because one idea is better than the other, but rather it's this idea that Elon Musk um, talked about just the other day about scale and how it's about, about scale and, and systems. And we are so fortunate to have an expert in this, John List, an economist with, uh, he's the economist for Walmart. He's got an amazing background, recently wrote the book that we see uh, in his uh, video there, The Voltage Effect. Um, nicely done, John. So, John, <laughs> welcome, welcome to the Wealth Ability Show. Um, thanks so much for having me, and I, I look forward to our chat. Thank you. So if you would, John, just give the, our listeners a little of your background and uh, yeah. how you came to write this book. No, absolutely. So I'm a professor of economics at the University of Chicago's econ department. And I started a pre-K back in 2010 for three, four and five year olds. And after I received great results, I tried to scale it. And policymakers told me I was crazy because what happened in the Petri dish, there'd be no chance I would have the same level of success when I scaled it. So I started to do academic work around scaling. Now, what I learned was that as I was thinking about scaling that public program, what was going on at Uber at the time, I was a chief economist at Uber, this is around 2015, we had the same questions around scaling. And we had the same questions about whether an idea would work 
at scale. And I then hearkened back to my days. I worked in the White House in 2002, 2003. I was a senior economist for Bush too. And we had the same kinds of questions. We were wondering, that policy looks great in Akron. Will it scale up? And in all of these venues, whether it was my time in the White House, whether it was my time as an academic, whether it was my time as chief economist at Uber, it was the same sort of question. Will that idea scale? And I started to look into the literature. And what I learned is people viewed scaling as an art. And what I mean by art is it was move fast and break things, throw spaghetti against the wall and whatever sticks, cook it, you know, fake it till you make it. Tom, that's art. That's not science. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So, so you said something right there that kind of piqued my interest. And of course I'm, I'm, we're in a business that is uh, working on scaling right now. So I'm very, very interested in this. And a lot of our listeners, our listeners are all entrepreneurs. So they're all interested. Most of them are interested in scaling, going to a bigger result, be able to serve more people. Right. So you, you, but you mentioned there that, okay, what ideal, what ideas can scale and what ideas can't. So do you, is it, has your study shown that there are certain ideas that just will never scale and there are other ideas that are really easy to scale? Absolutely. So let's be clear. First of all, the book is primarily on the features or signatures of an idea that can scale. So the back half of the book is on execution and it's on what are the ways that you can use economic thinking to make sure that you're executing. The first half of the book is primarily on what are the signatures of ideas that can scale? And I break it down into five pieces essentially. And it started because I started to look at ideas that made it big and I started to look at ideas that failed. And what kept coming up was that there was essentially one of five reasons why the idea failed to scale. And that's what I call the five vital signs. It's look at my idea. And if my idea has these five vital signs, then we have a chance for it to scale as long as I execute. Now, if the idea does not have these five vital signs, I'm dead. Even if I execute in a brilliant way, it's never going to scale to the level where you want it to scale. All right. So I won't make you give away all the five, <laughs> but I do, want, I, I do want to hear at least maybe one or two. So all right. give us all one right. or two. Let's talk about one or two. We want a free sample here. We want a free sample. So let me give you one example that happens a lot in government and one example that happens a lot in the business world. So what happens a lot in government is a false positive. And this happens in the business world too, so I'll bring it up. A lot of times people have a sample of data and it looks great. And because humans tend to have confirmation bias, what that means is if I have an idea that I think is going to work, every bit of evidence that comes in that's in my favor, I put a large weight on that. And every bit of evidence that comes in that's at odds with what I think, I say, well, that's a mistake. There's no way that that's true. Sure. So these are called false positives. A lot of times when we get data, 
It's simply a false positive. And I start off talking about Nancy Reagan in chapter one in Nancy Reagan's D.A.R.E. program. You might remember, Tom, and, and the audience might remember the Just Say No campaign. Right. This was a famous campaign in the 80s that we spent hundreds of millions of dollars on. It was simply a false positive. It didn't have voltage to begin with. And they were duped into thinking it had voltage. So that's, that's kind of one hurdle that you have to cross is make sure it has voltage. Now, gosh, where do I, this is like choosing my favorite child of my eight children. So, but let, let's talk about um, restaurants. So I, I, I looked into the restaurant business. A lot of restaurants try to scale. You know, they, they kill right. it with one restaurant and they say, wow, we have a million in EBITDA here. If we had a hundred of them, we'd have a hundred million in EBITDA. We're going to scale this thing up. Not only scale it within the local community, but also let's scale it across state lines and uh, nationally. Now, what's interesting is if the original success was due to the chef, it will never scale. Unique humans don't scale. Got it. If the initial success was due to the ingredients and those ingredients are available at scale, you got a shot. So what the analogy here is, is that it's really hard to scale around unique inputs. It's super hard to teach other people to be a unique human. So if you want to go down that dimension, you need to somehow turn it into a process. That's your only shot is if you turn that human or that unique input into a process that's available at scale, you got a shot. If you don't or can't turn that into a process, you're dead in the water. Got it. So those are those are kind of like two secrets I, of the first five. I, I love that one. So I, I want to I want to jump off on number two there, the the, the second one there because um, when when I look at something, I'm looking for a pattern. If I can find a pattern, I can develop a process. Basically, that's the way I look at it. And so talk about that process or those systems, because that's what makes Uber unique. That's what makes yeah. Walmart unique. That's what makes, um, uh, frankly, Tesla <laughs> unique. Um, you know, we've heard a lot about Elon Musk saying for him, Tesla is not about batteries. It's not about anything else. It's about scale. And the scale was everything to, yeah. to, to Musk. And, uh, and, and when you look at what he's done to a factory, I mean, to me, I think the, one of his most important contributions is not, 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 not his batteries. One of his most important contributions is the way he create, he, he, he builds his, uh, his plants. I mean, there, yeah. he's literally to me, the Henry Ford of, yeah. of, of this generation, uh, of this century. So, so talk about that and, yeah. and what, what is it that makes a system successful versus what makes a system fail? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that Tom, everything you said there is brilliant. And, and let me try to unpack a few pieces of that. So let's talk first about Musk. Now what's interesting about Musk and any great business person is they always start on the supply side. And, and that's vital side. Number five is understand the supply side of scaling. So every one of Musk's ideas begin with, they have great economies of scale. As I grow, 
it becomes cheaper and cheaper to provide the good or service. That's the supply side of scaling. Okay. So when Musk says, I do this, I do that, the key behind all of his ideas is the supply side. Okay, now let's go to the process and humans and inputs. So one thing I want to be clear about is I am not saying that you can't scale with humans. We've done that at Uber and Lyft. I was a chief economist at Uber. I was a chief economist at Lyft. We scaled and the key input is a human, right? It's one human, one piece of capital. And that scaled. It scaled because those humans are not incredibly unique, right? They're, right. they're like me. They're, they're normal people who can drive a car. And there are lots of substitutes for people who can drive a car. So you can scale with that. Now, Uber and Lyft would have never scaled had you needed somebody like Danica Patrick to drive. Because Danica Patrick is unique. She's a unique driver, Michael Schumacher, for those people who are in F1. These are unique drivers that if you had to have them, it's not going to scale unless you can make it a process like an autonomous car. So you can maybe create an autonomous car to drive like Danica Patrick. So so that's the key is to understand what are your non-negotiables? What are the Mm. reasons why? You're making it in the small. And can I replicate those non-negotiables in a way that I'm developing economies of scale that allow me to grow bigger and bigger? So the key is if I can't replicate those non-negotiables in a cost-effective way at scale, I need to go back to the drawing board and figure out what is the idea that can use inputs that are available at scale. And now let's be clear, technology is coming along so, so very quickly that it's possible that yesterday's idea that didn't scale, like if I, if I need a great computer programmer at a good price, that's becoming more available now. Oh, it is. And, right? and there were a lot of ideas. Right. That yeah, you have, no, no, you have no code software now. That, Absolutely uh, right. Yeah, it a lot basically allows anybody to program. 100%. So a lot of ideas that we've scrapped in the past that we can go back and revisit. And those ideas might now be scalable because of technological improvements in, in ways that we do things, in ways I can turn a human now into a process that's a good computer programmer. And, and now that's no longer a unique element. So that's what I'm talking about here, Tom. That, that, that's really interesting in my business, especially because I, I actually think that you can have, um, I actually think you can have a computer do tax planning. So, you know, you, I, I, I noticed your smile when I, when I did our introduction, right? Way more money and way less taxes, which by the way, it actually how, is how it works. Um, I, we always say that the more money you make, the more tax you pay, the, but the more assets you have, the less tax you pay. And really for us, it's been a matter of, again, looking at those patterns, right? We look at patterns in the law. You know, identify the patterns. And then once you identify the patterns, you can put that into any, you can put that into a computer process, but you can't, I mean, that's what Uber, I think was really brilliant at was identify the patterns of driving and what, what are people looking for? And how do I make that simple? How do I even follow, you know, how can I follow the car? Right. So I know where the, I know where my Uber driver is. I can see, I can see them coming along. 
I mean, we all do that, right? When we when we order an Uber, we're sitting there watching where is this where is this Uber driver right now? Yeah. And it's it's that pattern that that Uber followed to be able to make that possible. No, that's right. That's right. And I think the other bit of magic that Uber and Lyft and Rideshare in general has is that before they came along, it was really wait time was what's called the rationing device. And what I mean by that is you'd fly into mm-hmm. Logan airport in Boston, or you fly into LAX, or you fly into Vegas, McCarran, and you would wait in line for 45 minutes or an hour. So it was whoever would wait in line would get the car. So they they had wait time as a rationing device. And what Uber and Lyft did, which was brilliant, is they made price the rationing device. They made it a market. Mm -hmm. And now if, if cars get in short supply, we pay more. But we're able to get a car quickly because price is a rationing device and it's the market then that can scale. That's the beauty behind it. Right, but idea. that's a rationing device on the supply side. Yeah. Not the demand yeah. side, right? Well, because- I demand it though, because I, I, um, I can pay it and I like a low wait time. So the reason why right. I demand it is because they're using price to ration cars rather than wait time. If they used wait time to ration cars, it wouldn't be an innovation at all. Nobody would care about it. Interesting. Interesting. Does that make sense, Tom? It, it, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, all right. So you've, you've got your five, five things you've got to look at the idea. Got that. Okay. Now we've got to uh, create the system. How do you create a system? How do you make sure that system's going to succeed versus fail? I mean, is, yeah. are there certain yeah. uh, points that you look at as an as economist, for example, when you look at scale, uh, okay, this system's likely to succeed versus this system that's likely to fail. Yeah, great question. So the way I think about it is, and this is getting in now to the back half of the book, which is on after I launch an idea or after an idea has been launched, how should I be thinking through my decision-making? So the one thing that can give you let's say the best chance to succeed is if you think like an economist. So when I say think like an economist, chapter six talks about using incentives. And now an economist thinks about incentives, both in terms of prices or money, but also in terms of non-financial incentives. And I talk about what happened at Uber with tipping. You know, a lot of people don't realize, but only 1% of people tip on every uber trip oh my and three out of five people never ever tip wow so, so this this is like a crazy fact but then what it gets more interesting if you look at those three out of five people who never ever tip if you put them in a yellow cab you know the old yellow cab yep, yep, you yep. get in at the end you pay with cash or a credit card and you pay face to face and then you make the tip decision guess what? Now 90 or 95% of people tip, even though they weren't before. Social norms, social pressure, social image, these are all features that play very importantly when we're trying to scale and make decisions in our org. So chapter six kind of unpacks that. Chapter seven talks about thinking on the margin. Now, What I saw in the White House, what I see in the boardroom, I'm the chief economist now of Walmart. I've already seen it at Walmart. People tend to think in averages 
not in margins. So what mm. I mean by that yep. is they get a bunch of data and they look at the averages of the data and then they make a decision. Where you're in the tax side, you know this. Marginal tax rates are very exactly. different than averages. That's exactly what but, came to my mind. <laughs> right, right. You're doing this all the time. You're trying to get people. Think on the margin. Think but, on the you margin. know, what's interesting is, is how little people understand that. Uh, when I, I teach classes all the time yeah. on this to entrepreneurs, yeah. and I'll ask them, I'll, I'll give them an example of, let's say Susie gets a $5,000 bonus and um, it pushes her into the next bracket. How much additional taxes she have to pay? And sometimes I'll get back eight thousand dollars. I'm going, yeah. oh, so I got a five thousand dollar bonus, but an eight thousand dollar increase in tax. I'm going, yeah. Well, we're obviously looking at <laughs> are we average tax rate going up or just our marginal tax rate? <laughs> no, you're right. And this happens a lot in charitable. I do a lot of work in charitable giving, and I'm sure you get this a lot too. A lot of people think in charitable giving that oh yeah, if you give a hundred dollars. Um, they don't understand that with the current tax rate, you know, giving a hundred dollars means it's really like giving 67 right. or, or 63, whatever, whatever it is. They, they sort of feel that you get the whole hundred dollars back. Right. Tax, right. Right. I get, I get the whole hundred dollars. It's a back credit, not a deduction. Exactly. exactly. It's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. You got to think about the marginal tax rate. Yep. Yep. So, you know, I, I've taught economics for a long time and I always teach, you know, average versus marginal thinking, but in theory, it sounds right to students, but when they leave the classroom, it's really hard for humans to take learnings from one environment to another. And that's kind of what I try to do in this chapter is I try to say, look, here's a general way to think about marginal thinking. And if you just follow this kind of reasoning, which is really... Take thinner cuts of the data, and those thinner cuts will, will lead you to marginal thinking. I think we can all be a lot better off if we do things like that. So, so that's another way to think about, you know, kind of where I'm going here to answer your question is, to me, ensuring success is about being a good critical thinker and being able to think about your decision-making and a lot of times that comes down to economics 101 thinking. You know, for example, there's a chapter in the back half of the book that says winners quit. And, and we're always taught that we shouldn't quit. You know, Tom, you were probably raised in this way. I was raised in the Midwest. And I was taught that quitters never win and winners never quit. Mm -hmm. So society has taught us that quitting is repugnant. And we don't quit because of that. Another reason why we don't quit is because we neglect our opportunity cost of time. So here's what I mean by that. I read a big survey of recent people who have quit their jobs. Here, here are reasons why they quit. Reason number one, my boss no longer appreciated me. Reason number two, I didn't get the promotion I thought I deserved. Reason number three, I didn't get that pay raise. Reason number four, I got crossed with a coworker, dot, 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 all the way down to reason number 10, I didn't like my cubicle. So the point here is every reason was my current job got soiled. That's the wrong way to think about life. That's part of the problem. The other part is my opportunity set got better. Right. My, the job market got better and all these jobs came out and I was pulled 
not pushed. We don't think that way because we neglect our opportunity set. We don't periodically look around. What does the job market look like? Or what's that new apartment I could move to? Or is there a better city I could move to? We don't do that until we're pushed because we ignore our opportunity cost. And that's another reason why we don't quit enough. So I bring science to that question. And now now you're kind of feeling the back half of the book is about decision-making, but it's decision-making not only for entrepreneurs, but it's decision-making for everyone that it's like a self-help type of of setting here in the back half of the book. I like that. So um, final, final, final question for you as we wrap up. One thing that our listeners could do right now um, in order to get ready to scale. Yeah, I would say read the book. Reason number one, um, figure out, does your idea have the five vital signs? If it doesn't, you still might want to scale it. It's just recognize that the tent isn't going to be as big as what you thought it could be. Or secondly, Go back to the drawing board and kick the tires to see if you can satisfy the five vital signs. And then after you satisfy those five vital signs, go to the second half of the book and figure out, here's how I'm going to execute. I'm going to be a good critical thinker. And I'm going to think through how I'm making decisions and how I'm generating data. And that's how to lift off that rocket ship and make sure the rocket ship stays in flight for as long as it can. Awesome. Thank you very much. So John List, the book is, as we can see, The Voltage Effect. Um, Great to have you, John. Thank you so much. Um, If we want more information about you or what you do, where do we go? Gosh, if you Google John List, there will be a mass murderer who comes up. So I apologize for that. I'm not related (laughs) to that person. Go down to about the third one. Um, You can also find me on Twitter. I'm called Econ for Everyone. I'm also on LinkedIn. And um, I have a bunch of connections on LinkedIn, and I put a bunch of content there. And if you want to talk about Walmart, um, go ahead and give me any advice you have on how we can make Walmart better and how we can scale it. And um, from there, you know, you can just check me out on Google, I would say, once you get past that that nasty mass murder. Got it. Got it. Thank you. Um, just remember when, you know, I, I, I love that we have, we have first I'll have, have to figure out, can we scale? Okay. Is our idea something that can scale? And then we can go into the, you know, looking at the patterns and the systems and, and doing that so that we can scale. That's why I love the way you've broken your book down. Here's the first half and then here's the second half. Because when we do that, what I find is people scale is they actually make way more money and pay way less tax. We'll see you all next time. Thanks, John. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. And thanks for taking the time for us. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It was a fun chat. No, that was, uh, that, that was terrific. I think we sh- actually share a lot in uh, simplifying very complex, uh, complex topics. If, I'd had, uh, if, if we'd had time, which I know you've got to go, I would have asked you for your favorite economist joke. But <laughs> you know, yeah, mine is, is if you take all the economists in the world and stretch them end to end, they won't reach a conclusion. How many economists does it take to change a light bulb, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right, Tom, it was great seeing you. Thank you very much, John. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.